On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their homes. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our uh, glory to listen to it and to submit our hearts to it. And I pray that you would transform us, your people, by your grace as your word uh, does its work, uh, piercing even to the division of uh, soul and spirit Uh, We pray that you would uh, pour in whatever healing is needed into the lives of this, your people, uh, whatever changes we need to make. But, Father, it is our desire to grow in you, to be conformed to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The story is told of Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. John Watson going out for a camping trip. And they set up their tent and went to sleep that evening. Several hours later, uh, Holmes woke up Watson and said, Watson, wake up. Look up at the sky. Tell me what you see. He said, well, I see billions of stars. He says, well, what what does that tell you? And uh, Watson pondered for a moment. He said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies, perhaps even billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, it tells me it's approximately 15 minutes after 3 o'clock in the morning. Theologically, it's evident that the Lord is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it tells me that uh, this morning is going to be a beautiful day. And... uh, Holmes did not reply, so he finally says, well, Holmes, what does it say to you? And uh, Holmes was silent for a moment, then he said, Watson, you imbecile, it means that someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) (laughs) Now this morning, (laughs) this morning I want us to go to the tomb of Christ, I want to put us have us put on our sleuthing caps, and I want us to look into that tomb and try to do some examination and see if we can make any logical conclusions. Why were the grave clothes there? And what shape were they in? And where was the hundred pounds of spices? And why was the uh, head cloth laid by itself? In fact, why was it neatly folded up and put uh, by itself in some place? Uh, Why was it that the disciples didn't, you know, take those clothes and sell them for a fortune on eBay? (laughs) Uh, There's a number of questions we could ask, 
and give pretty profound answers to, just like Dr. Watson gave profound answers, you know, when he looks up there at the stars. But it's very important that we not miss the obvious and the very practical uh, applications of this passage as well, uh, because it's not just a doctrine about Christ, but it's the implications of that doctrine that we need to live out. We need to give uh, Dr. Holmes's uh, answer as well. In verse 8, we find that John was a pretty good detective. With one look inside of that tomb, he takes it all in, and it says he saw and believed. There's a whole bunch of processes going on his head, and he instantly took it in. He saw and believed. What was it that he saw that made him believe? Well, one of the first things that he saw is evidence that there had been a death. That's pretty obvious. Uh, the stained, blood-stained uh, claws that were lying there made it very clear a death had occurred. This was not a dream that he was going to be waking up from and say, oh, good, it wasn't uh, true that he had died. No, a death had occurred. They had gone through harrowing experience early and witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus. They saw the, the sword, uh, I mean, the, the spear that pierced his heart and all of the water and the blood that came uh, gushing out. There was plenty of witnesses. In fact, we have over 100 testimonies in the New Testament alone to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to believe this because there are Muslims out there who say Jesus did not die. They insist upon that. And yet there is evidence all throughout the Scripture. There is secular evidence that Jesus lived and he died. And this is a key to understanding why it was that the Apostle John believed. If you do not believe that Jesus died as a substitute for your sins, then uh, you are lost for all of eternity. There is no hope of your salvation. It is absolutely essential, we believe, a death occurred, and it was a substitutionary death so that we would not have to die. A second thing that these undisturbed grave clothes demonstrated is that the body of Jesus was not stolen. Now, there were a lot of theories that have arisen down through the centuries trying to disprove the resurrection of Jesus because this is such a central doctrine. Satan has done everything he can to try to disprove it. And in Matthew 28, 13, we have the very first anti-resurrection theory. And actually, the people who propound it didn't believe it because it says the soldiers saw the angel. They saw the earthquake. They saw the angel take that stone aside. They're petrified, and they go out telling all of the things that happened. They were witnesses, actually, to the resurrection. When the leaders of Israel find out about it, they say, hey, don't be talking about this anymore. We'll pay you a huge sum of money if you tell everybody that you see that this body has been stolen. Unfortunately, they've already been telling a whole bunch of people that that wasn't true. But they go ahead and they do that. They get this bribe money and they try to tell everybody that the body had been stolen. Well, that really doesn't make any sense whatsoever because any soldier in a Roman army who allowed that body to be stolen, according to Roman law, they'd be put to death. They would be put to death if they fell asleep. So they couldn't say, well, we didn't know he came. You know, we were sleeping at the time. Well, how come you're living? Because in Rome, you'd automatically be put to death. Something strange, something fishy is going uh, along with that particular testimony. Thirdly, even if they had been sleeping and somebody had managed to sneak past this uh, troop of, um, of soldiers, the noise of opening the tomb 
And then the fragrance of all of the spices as they carry that body past, surely, uh, would have um, clued the soldiers into something happening. If you take a look at chapter 19 and uh, verse 39, it says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. That's an enormous amount of spices that they're going to be packing around this body. So we've got a huge problem here if you're going to claim that the body was stolen. Who would be crazy enough to go to all of the work of unwrapping, you know, hundreds of feet of this linen clothing in order to take a body without the clothing? I mean, you'd want to take it all cleaned and wrapped up rather than having all of these spices and everything else all over the place. That didn't make any sense whatsoever. And um, if his body had been unwrapped, the spices would have been far more conspicuous than the clothing itself. In fact, if they went in there and they saw, whoa, what happened here? They saw a clothing, all of these strips everywhere and the spices everywhere it would have clued them in to something disastrous has happened to the body of Jesus. They wouldn't have believed. But it says, looking at this, it made them believe. They were putting two and two together. <laughs> they see that these, these hundreds of feet of wrapping are still there. They don't see the spices. They're still within all of that wrapping. And it makes them realize that what Jesus had prophesied, that he would die, he'd be in the tomb, and he would rise the third day, has exactly happened, just like they uh, said that it would happen. Now, why, why is uh, 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 this important? Well, I think it's important to, 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 to put off any of the arguments that unbelievers have given against the resurrection of Jesus. There is no way robbers would have left this encasing and, okay, the body's missing, but it still looks like it was wrapped around the body. There's no way that robbers would have been, been able to pull that off. Third thing that these clothes proved was that Christ's resurrection was different from all other previous resurrections. Remember in the Old Testament, there was a guy that when his body was thrown into the tomb, uh, it touched the bones of, was it Elijah or Elijah? He came to, to life. There have been other resurrections before, but never into a glorified body. So took, turn back with me to John chapter 11, and let's look at the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus has been stinking, rotting, decaying in that uh, tomb, and yet he is raised uh, from the dead and raised to life. But there is a stark contrast between his resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus, just in terms of grave clothes. Let's, um, let's see here. Let's begin reading at verse 43. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. You see the remarkable contrast there? He's bound up in these grave clothes as well, but he can't get out of them. Uh, the reason he can't get out and has to be loosed by other people is because he was not raised into a glorified body. He did not have an immortal body. Jesus was the first one uh, to rise with a, a body that was able to pass through solid doors, and in this case, pass through this clothing here. And we might ask ourselves, why do we have to distinguish so clearly Christ's resurrection from the resurrection of Lazarus or anybody else? 
that his was a glorified body. The others were not glorified. Well, Acts 26, 23 says that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead. If Christ's resurrection was no different than Lazarus's, this would not be true. We would not have an inerrant Bible. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. He was the first to get a glorified body, the first to get an immortal body. Lazarus' body was going to die again. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 10 says that uh, the Pharisees and the other leaders tried to put Lazarus to death again. And so it's very, very clear it's a different kind of a body. But this also, I think, gives the blow to the theory that says that Jesus was merely resuscitated. You've probably heard of the swoon theory. People say, ah, he didn't rise from the dead. He just, he went unconscious when he was on the cross. They thought he was dead. They put him into the tomb. And later on, after having been blacked out for a while, he came to and he escaped from that tomb. Well, the problem with that is that here there's evidence that his body itself changed. Somehow Christ's body was so physically changed, it was able to pass through those clothes. And yet the same body was able to pick up clothes. Look at verse 7. John 20, verse 7. The handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, if you compare this path, there were several people who came and looked at the tomb. And Matthew 28, you look at the different uh, passages. There were women who came earlier, right while the guards were there. And, and uh, uh, while the guards were there, the, the earthquake happened. The angel came, rolled away the stone, talked to them and said he was risen. So they were w- witnesses to all of this. But what's, uh, going on, uh, what's going on in this passage here is that there's evidence his body has been changed and yet there's some connection to his old body and it's a real body because it's able to pick up this napkin fold it and put it aside he was the only one in that tomb prior to this first people i mean the women did not go in first people to actually go in uh after uh, the resurrection were john and uh, peter And so uh, it it does show that um, uh, it was different than any previous happening. But fourth, the absence of the body and the presence of the clothes helps to inform us on what kind of resurrection body is a glorified body. Uh, First John says, when we get to, to, at the second coming, when we get our resurrection bodies, we will be just like Christ's resurrection body. So if we look at Christ's resurrection body, it'll give us some kind of a hint as to what our bodies will be like. Now, it's different from his old body in that it can pass through these clothes. In fact, if you compare this account to Matthew 28, Jesus left the tomb, must have gone right through the tomb walls, before the door was open. Because when the angel came and he opened the door for the first time, he announced that Jesus is already risen. He's already gone. He did not open up that tomb to let Jesus out. He opened up that tomb door so that the women could look inside. And so here's the body of Jesus in some way. It's able to pass through solid objects. Luke 24 is another passage. They're all hidden in this room, locked doors. And what happens? Jesus appears in their midst. He comes right through those walls and and appears uh, in, in their midst. So there's a change in relationship to the physical laws that govern our body. And yet, 
It's the same body. Because there's no body in this tomb. You know, some people say we're going to be given a totally different body, unrelated whatsoever to the body that we uh, have. Uh, there's uh, the full preterists out there who say our bodies were raised at the second, I mean, at 70 AD. There won't be any f- physical resurrection of our bodies in the future, utterly unrelated to the present physical body that we, we have. And uh, what I'm here to tell you is, no, our bodies are just like Christ. There is a relationship. Christ's old body came out of those grave clothes, and yet somehow it was changed. So it's a glorified body, and yet there's a connection to the old. Now, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24, and this is a good passage to use with full preterists as well as Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that... um, that uh, uh, our glorified body has flesh and bones. Luke 24. Here is a body that, yes, can pass through doors, pass through solid objects, and yet it has bones, flesh, can eat, can touch people. People can touch that body. It's, It's a remarkable thing. And let's begin reading at verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence." Now, there are some who insist, okay, yeah, First John's clear. Our bodies are going to be like Christ's body. But there's no connection between our body and the old one. And for sure, we're not going to have flesh and bones. We say, no, that's what Luke 24 says. He had flesh and bones. Yes, his flesh and bones were able to pass through objects. Why? Because they were glorified, no longer subject to the laws of physics that we uh, usually think about. And yet it was still uh, the same uh, body with changed uh, properties. So what we need to do is we need to put on Dr. Watson's hat, and we need to make logical deductions. We need to say, look, even the grave clothes disprove some of the false theories out there concerning the resurrection. And then finally, all of this was sufficient to make a believer out of John. John 20, verse 8 says, And the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and he believed. Now, evidence alone will never convert you because he believed because Christ had previously told him the Scriptures, right? Christ had previously told him he had to be raised on the third day. So now he sees the evidence, and that word brings faith into his heart. But what does he see here? All he sees is a a tomb that's actually not empty, okay? People talk about the empty tomb, but it was not empty. It was empty of a body, but there was grave clothing there, undisturbed spices. There was a napkin that was folded, and all uh, by itself. And so they saw a miracle, and it was undeniable. Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Amen? Amen. That is something we can rejoice in. So that's what the grave clothes teach. But it would be very easy to stop there and miss the important applications. And so let's put on Holmes' uh, hat, and let's ask the question, what practical difference should this doctrine make in our lives? And for this, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians Uh, chapter 15. Now in this chapter, 
Paul gives us six life-changing implications that come from believing in the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, some people, uh, they say, ah, just forget about doctrine. Doctrine divides, love unites, doctrine's not practical. And I say, no, no, no. If you don't, what you believe is always going to have some impact upon your life. And if you got wrong doctrine, automatically you're going to have the wrong practical implications. Read Paul's epistles. And you will realize he always starts with doctrine in the first half of the book, and then he gives the logical implications, the practical applications in the second half uh, of that book. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now, if you analyze those verses carefully, you're going to see that they answer at least six of man's deepest longings. And most of these are stated in the negative because uh, they're the implications of what happens if Christ is not risen. But in verse 20, he says, but now Christ is risen. Okay, so if he is risen, then obviously it's the reverse of those implications, the positive that we need to be looking at. And that's what we're going to do, take a look at six positive implications. First positive implication is that our lives can have significance beyond the grave. Uh, This is what uh, humans have longed for for just as far back as we have history. Destiny. We want to know what is our destiny. And the reason that Christ's resurrection has this implication is that we could have no resurrection without Christ's resurrection. Paul says here that if Christ is not risen, we will not rise. And if you deny that we will rise in the future automatically, logically, you have denied the resurrection of Christ. That's how tightly our identity, our bodies, are lined up with His body. We, our destiny was lined up with His. And so to put this in positive terms, Christ's resurrection guarantees that our lives will have significance beyond the grave. And I think this really has been a human longing uh, for, for mankind. You look at the tombs in ancient Egypt, and the pyramids, and you look at the uh, Incan civilization, you can look just about anywhere, and there is this preoccupation with knowing where will we be in the future. Now, this even cannot be escaped by by becoming an atheist, because even atheists want their name and their, 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 their fame to endure beyond the grave. They're constantly building monuments to themselves, and and building some kind of an empire or, or at least a, a business or something. They want their lives to count. And the reason they cannot escape from that is Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in their hearts. 
They can't escape from that sense of eternity. Uh, In fact, they feel miserable if they think, is this all there is to life, just what we live down here below? That's too depressing, way too depressing. And so they cannot escape from that. But the only way that we can have this sense with an absolute certainty that our lives will have significance beyond the grave is if Christ was raised. Verse 14 gives a second implication, and that is that our calling, our jobs, the dominion that we do day by day can have success. And I think this is, again, another deep longing that people have in their hearts. They don't want to get to the end of their lives and say, wow, I wasted my life. They want to get to the end of their lives and have a sense of satisfaction. You know, I've accomplished something. My life was a success. Well, look at verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. Now, that was Paul's calling, was to be a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he said everything that his life revolved around, his calling to preach the gospel, was useless, was nothing if Jesus had not risen from the the grave. It was the knowledge of Christ's presence with him, his power working through him. The reality of of this doctrine gave him meaning. And you might say, well, I'm not a preacher. Uh, That's not very significant for me. But take a look at the very last verse of this chapter because he applies this to every one of us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He is saying when you once understand the significance of the resurrection of Christ, his living presence with us, it just transforms everything that you do. It makes everything that you do uh, valuable. There's an energizing motivation and knowing his resurrection power can take absolutely everything that we do and make it contribute to the, the forward advancement, the teleology is what we speak of, of history, that everything we do, nothing needs to be in vain if by faith we will look to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to accomplish this. So it is only the reality of Christ's resurrection that can enable even the giving of a cup of cold water in his name, to by no means lose its reward. Okay, it's the resurrection of Christ that can give meaning to the Lord's table. But it's also the resurrection of the, Lord's, uh, uh, of the Lord himself that can give meaning to our jobs, no matter how drudgerous they are. Colossians and Ephesians talks about these slaves who were emptying latrines and doing all kinds of probably what maybe they thought was meaningless labor. And he said, no, do it as unto the Lord. If you just do it for your masters, you're not going to have the motivation uh, uh, to be able to persevere and find joy in that. But if you do it for Christ, it'll give you meaning. And if you do it for Christ, it will lay up treasures in heaven. It will be something that will uh, advance the cause of Christ down here below. So your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Third implication that Paul gives is stated twice. Verse 14 says that without Christ's resurrection, your faith is in vain. Verse 17 says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or futile. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, One of the two. What's the opposite of having a vain or a futile faith? It's having a well-founded faith. It's having security uh, in, in someone. And again, I think this is a deep longing that human hearts have. They want, they desire to have a relationship with someone that they, they know is not going to let them down. They've been burned so many times uh, that uh, they think, 
isn't there somebody that I can just be open with, transparent with, who will not let me down? I want to have that kind of security. I think God put that in our hearts right from the time that he created Adam and Eve. Now, the problem is sin came into the equation. And because of sin, even those that you love the dearest are going to hurt you. It's almost inevitable that that will happen. When you get hurt, the temptation is to clam up and never to be vulnerable again. I'm not going to trust anybody again. And to have this sense of lack of security in others. So what Paul is saying is, Here is a person you can absolutely trust. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never let you down. He will be a friend in the time of trouble. You can be vulnerable with him. You can open up to him and he can transform because he controls the people around you and the situations around you. He can transform even the hurts of life into that which would be meaningful. So it's a well-founded faith. The fourth longing of the human heart is the longing to have absolute truth that we can bank on. You know, we live in a postmodern culture where everybody seems to be anchorless. Uh, They don't really believe in absolute truth anymore. Many young people are being taught there is no such thing as absolute truth. You'll hear statements, well, that's true for you. And the implication is it's not true for me. So it can be true for you, not true for somebody else, and you can believe whatever you want. I'm not going to impose my opinions on people. That's a very common statement, even made by Christians. And what do they mean by that? Unwittingly, they have adopted a postmodern concept that truth is really unimportant, and I'm not going to impose what I believe. Why? Because it's subjective. It's not objective. And Scripture says no. Truth is not a subjective opinion. Truth is something that stands over everyone, and everyone will be judged by that. And so um, what what we need to do is impress upon people the importance of banking on absolute truth. And I think even the postmodern man recognizes this. This is why they feel so rootless. Uh, This past Wednesday, I was talking with a friend who does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and, he, oh man, this guy's so poetic. He wants to affirm like he's a Christian and he believes all of these things and how wonderful all of these scriptures are. He loves to believe that God loves him, okay? But he doesn't believe Genesis 1 through 11 is really history. In fact, he's skeptical about just about everything in the Old Testament. Some of it may be true, some may not be true, but a lot of it's mythology in his mind. He certainly does not believe Joshua and Judges. He thinks that's horrible. That's so primitive. No, we've, we've evolved way beyond that. And uh, I, I try to point out, look, if you think that's harsh, uh, just read Revelation, please. Revelation <laughs> speaks of the same God of wrath who's going to destroy and rejoice in his judgments over these people. And I just have a hard time getting through to this person. But I, I give him scriptures like this or passages like in Romans where it says, let God be true and every man a liar. And, and the, the scripture cannot be broken. And other passages like that, and he says, Phil, you're just worshiping the Bible. That's bibliolatry. Uh, you should worship Jesus, not worship the Bible. Uh, Jesus is not the Bible, and the Bible is not Jesus. And I said, no, you got it all wrong. It's ridiculous to say that I can believe nothing or just half of what you are saying and say, you're, you're just so false, without insulting you. You cannot insult the Bible without insulting the Jesus who gave that Bible because it is his very word. Anyway, we go round and round on on these questions, and he has a hard time with it. Well, what Paul is saying here 
is if you deny one little portion of the truth of God, in this case it's the resurrection, then suddenly the messenger of that becomes a false witness. Paul is saying you've got to take it all or you've got to leave it. If you do not believe one part of the Scripture, how do you know you can trust any other portion of that Scripture? And so your faith is in vain if you deny the inerrancy of Scripture. I think that's basically the implication that he gives. Your faith is in vain if you deny the inerrancy of Scripture. But the flip side is, when you believe the whole Bible to be the inerrant and reliable guide, it gives meaning to life. It gives an anchor to life. It gives you a criterion by which you can judge every truth claim that is out there. It gives you the axioms of life to be able to make systems that are reliable. And so uh, Paul says, without the resurrection, you don't have absolute truth. Fifth implication that Paul gives is in verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Now, what's the opposite of being still in your sins? Be to have those sins wiped out, right? To have a clean slate. And I think that is. People may deny it, But this is one of the deepest longings of human hearts. It makes them feel horrible when they know somebody has a grudge against them, where where there's this broken fellowship and they know that they, they feel this guilty conscience. It eats away at them. People want to have a clean slate. Now, what's true on a horizontal level is even more true in terms of our relationship to God. People don't want to face Judgment Day, knowing all of the wicked, evil things that they have done have not been forgiven. Now, here's the, here's the point uh, here, is that Christ's resurrection was the proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of the cross as the payment for our sins. Christ's resurrection was the guarantee, if you put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus, the, the, the slate has been wiped out. You're, you're going to be able to go to the judge and, and, and he's going to be able to say, yeah, I have nothing against you. Every sin was paid for in Jesus Christ. So the question is, have you trusted him? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus? Sixth, verse 19 says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now, what's the opposite of being pitied? The opposite of being pitied is to be envied, right? You got it so good. I wish I had it like you had it. That's what uh, Romans 11 says. He wants us to live out the gospel and the law, the scriptures so thoroughly that others look on and they say, wow, how come you have all of the blessings that we don't have? He wants the Gentiles to be living it out so great that the Jews become jealous of the gospel and say, Hey, look at all we've given up. Look at the way they've been blessed when they uh, use God's laws in their nation. Okay, that's to be envied because you got it so good. And this is exactly what Paul says we have. We have it good. Our lives are so significant. They're so full of meaning, so full of the blessing of God, the power of God, the, the working of God through us. But if Christ is not risen, then living for him and doing what he commands is a delusion. Why suffer? If this is the only life that we live, yet Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 
While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you're not to be pitied. You might be persecuted. You might have lost all of your goods there. You may end up in jail. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much deprivation you may have on this earth, how much suffering you may have. You are to be envied. It's the unbeliever who is to be pitied because he's going to be spending an eternity outside of Christ, under the torment of God's judgments. You are to be envied because anything that happens down here below is laying up in heaven a far more exceeding weight of glory than anybody, any glory, any riches that people could lay up here on earth. And so again, the question is, are you secure? The only way you can be secure is by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, you will have this life to be envied. Now, I want to conclude with one last implication. And that is, just like Jesus had to leave some clothes behind, every one of us is going to be leaving some things behind that we cannot carry with us. 1 Timothy Verse chapter 6, verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And yet, what is, it, what is it that we are so preoccupied with? We're not preoccupied with heaven, with eternity, with things like that. We're so preoccupied with getting more money and getting more clothes and, and getting cars and houses and things like that. And, and, and he's saying, look, you're going to have to leave all those things behind. And if your preoccupation is with that, yes, you may get into heaven, but you're not going to be laying up treasures. You're going to be so far behind those who have been laying up treasures in heaven. But on the other hand, if you treat your clothing as a stewardship trust from Christ and you use it to His glory, if you treat your cars and your houses and everything else that you have and you use it to the best of your ability to serve Him, then... Every one of those things can lay up treasures in heaven, which means that they can have significance for eternity. So even we as Christians, we need to begin thinking from an eternal perspective. We've got to look through the lens of the resurrection. It makes a huge difference how we think about life. But it makes an even greater difference on who you know. And so my last admonition is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Not just a doctrine about Him, but knowing the Lord Himself. He left behind what we will one day have to leave behind, but He entered into the heaven that we too can enter into. And so don't be like Dr. Watson and miss the most important and obvious clue of all that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Be like uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and look at the obvious. We're going to die but you know what? Jesus died on our behalf, and our death can usher us in to the life more abundant. Because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. Trust Him. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Father God, we come to You, and we thank You for the incredible plan that You uh, planned out from eternity past. And Lord Jesus, for having lived that perfect life so that You could give Your righteousness to us having died that death so that we uh, could uh, cast our sins upon you. You could bear it for us. And having been raised from the dead and ascended to your throne so that we could be united with you in your power. 
And Father, I pray that uh, we would embrace your plan. And Lord Jesus, that we would embrace your atonement and the reality of your presence now so that with Paul we could say, the life that I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who lives in me. And Holy Spirit, that we may no longer resist you, but that your uh, convictions would be instantly accepted by us and uh, turn us more and more to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love you, and it is our desire to follow you all of our days and to have our lives have the significance of these six things. Father, there are so many people outside uh, and even inside of churches uh, who uh, do not know you in a personal way. And so they will never enter into the fulfillment of these six deepest longings uh, that humans experience. And I pray that you would take the blinders off their eyes. And even this day, as your word is being preached all over this world, that you would give the illumination of your Holy Spirit and cause a revival and a reformation such as never happened before to break forth upon this planet Earth to your glory and for the exaltation of your Son and for the joy of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.